This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back. Welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, August 15th, 2022 edition. I am Justin Klein, and I'm excited, as always, to take your finance and investment questions and try to distill a little uh, perspective, some data, and some experience into your decision-making process and help you build the tools. And that's what's most important here. It's helping you have the right mindset, have the right process for making good investment decisions, good money decisions. Because it's not just about the investment side. I know we talk a lot about investing, but it's about saving and spending as well. So I encourage you to reach out to me with your question, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 888 chart Or if you're listening right now during our live stream program, you can give us a call and talk to me directly. I love that. Now I have a action-packed podcast for you today. And my focus point concerns the story behind this question. Could China's real estate bust trigger wider problems globally? So we're going to look at the potential spillover effect into other sectors of the global economy. Now, time permitting, I also want to touch on the student debt forbearance issue because that is kind of this thing that's hanging over the economy's head, a lot of consumers' heads, especially young consumers. And it could have a large impact if they go one way or the other, right? Forcing people to start paying again or all the way to the other side is forgiving at all, or is there somewhere in between? So we're going to look at that. And then what are consumers spending money on? We've talked about how consumers have slowed their spending on uh, physical things, goods, but more on services, but what type of services? So we're going to look at that. And then how are investors playing the inflation game. What are they expecting for inflation going out into the medium term future? So we're going to look at that. But ultimately, it's not about what I want to talk about. This is what about what you want to talk about. Okay, so I see we have some voice bank questions ready to play. Looks like we might touch on dividend reinvestment as well as deer. And my special perspective report on the halfway point about the halfway point in this podcast is focusing on Americans and their net worth by group. So I've got all this planned for this episode of Invest Talk, and of course, I will take your calls live at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Let's see. Let's check on the market today. We had a pretty nice update overall. The S and P was up about seventeen points, about one third of one percent. The NYSE. That was actually down though, ten points. So really, overall, it was a it was a pause day. The Russell that was up four point seven points, so modestly higher, uh, and 
I think that's what you're likely to see here is a more of a grind up uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, we have options X week. So this is often a week where there's a lot of game playing. There's talked about market manipulation last week. A lot of dealers will do that. They'll try to push stocks one way or the other. And that usually picks up a, a little bit of volatility. Uh, and then things often shift at the next week. So I could see that happening where there was a lot of bets on the downside of the market. So what ha what typically happens is the dealers try to take it the other way to try to get those option players off sides. And then uh, they liquidate their positions once Ops X goes away. That would be next week. So a counter trend, you know, down week next week would not shock me. But for most of this week, I expect modest upside. Uh, what else happened today? We had the dollar that was uh, up pretty significantly today, even though the 10 year, the 10 year that was down five, about almost six basis points. So pretty interesting move there. Usually those don't, those type of moves don't aren't in conjunction. Um, so which we'll see which one wins. Is it the, uh, the bond market or the currency market? So that's the market today, pretty flat overall. Now let's go to, get to our first caller question now. I'm interested to invest in one of these two ETFs, C-U-T, and the second one, W-O-O-D. Can you help me pick one of them? Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Looks like he wants to invest in the lumber sector. And the first one is the Invesco MSCI Global Timber ETF, so Global and it has an expense ratio of about 0.6%, 0.6%, and roughly a 2% yield. And then on the other one, let me pull this up here. This one didn't pull up. The other one is the iShares Global Timber and Forestry ETF. So both are global. Hmm. Let me see if this other one wants to pull up. It's, hmm, it's not pulling up for me. Let's try a different system. This is what happens sometimes, you know? It just doesn't want to pull up on one system. Uh, okay, so Wood found my my other system. I told you I have a lot of data, so I have a lot of systems I can look these, these things up on. Uh, about 0.4% expense ratio, so a little lower on Wood. And then when it comes to cut, this is being... Morningstar is being difficult for me now. I use Morningstar typically for ETFs, mutual funds, things like that. There we go. Uh, I like that they're both global, so that's helpful. Um, about 100, no, let's see, how many names are in this one? 48? Yeah. No, sorry, 72 is in cut. And then, hmm. These are always fun to navigate. Okay, yeah, if I'm, I'm just gonna go with the lower fee here. Uh, I don't see a whole lot different difference overall. Um, so I'm gonna go with Wood, W-O-O-D, which is the iShares Global Timber and Forestry ETF. Now we're heading into a break and I welcome your finance and investment questions right now. No question is too simple or too complex. You set the agenda. Give us a call on Invest Talk at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? 
Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey, guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99 chart. Now my focus point concerns the story behind this question, could China's real estate bust trigger wider problems globally. And for the better part of two decades, China has really relied on their real estate sector to propel their economy forward. And they doubled down post-financial crisis. And that was one of the big reasons why the economy recovered fairly well, was a lot of stimulus coming out of China uh, and demand for physical goods and uh, the rep- requisite increase in consumer balance sheets uh, for prices of, of real estate going up and investment into real estate, etc. cetera. Uh, but now that we see inflation going up and interest rates globally going up, the housing bust in China has recorded its 11 straight month of price declines. Now, price decline is minor out of 70 cities. In July, prices were down 0.1%. So, you know, it's not like this is a huge drop. It's more of a stagnation within the Chinese economy. Uh, But what's interesting here is there's a lot of angst. And when people get used to, and this is kind of part of the anti-fragile thing, when you don't have volatility within a particular asset class, uh, it becomes more fragile, not less. And when citizens think that, you know, the price of their property should just continue to go up, any little about volatility becomes a big deal. And China has incentivized people to invest locally in their own real estate uh, because it's they have strict controls on cross-border capital. Uh, they have virtually no interest on bank deposits. And so the population doesn't have a whole lot of alternatives but to invest in their housing market. They even kind of try to get people to not invest in the, the volatile stock market. So there's a lot of uh, you know, local pride in, in owning real estate. And uh, when it comes to getting married in China as well, there's a lot, if you don't own property, it's a lot harder to find somebody as well if you're male. So Goldman Sachs famously estimated in 2019 that the country's entire real estate market was valued at $52 trillion double that of here in the US. 
And you have companies like Evergrande, the world's most indebted company, and China's largest real estate developer. They defaulted last year, and you have many of their rivals in distress as well. And what you've seen recently are mortgage boycotts from Chinese investors who don't think that their properties will actually be built. You know, they put money down and they're, they're ready to, to own it, but they're not going to pay um, that initial, uh, those initial mortgage payments before it actually happens. And so this is a contentious issue for President Xi, who's also trying to secure another term. Uh, and he's also creating a lot of zero COVID policies that are very draconian and frankly prevent the economy from really recovering. And so that's part of this as well is um, employment and uh, people just being able to afford to go out there and buy a home. And so that's an issue uh, that, you know, is frankly not, I don't think going to change anytime soon because there's not a lot of people within China that are going to tell President Xi that, hey, these lockdowns, they're never going to work. Uh, and you don't need to spray the tarmac of the of the airport to try to kill COVID because that's not how it works, right? So they just, their, their policy around COVID is not keeping up with the science. And, you know, we've learned a lot over the past two plus years about how it spreads and the risks, et cetera. And frankly, they're just not listening to that and they're keeping up with these lockdowns. And frankly, they're not working. <laughs> so uh, that's one issue as well. And this is one of the big reasons why the commodity market has pulled back over the past few months is, hey, if China keeps up with this means that's less demand from their economy because it's not growing. It's in, in some instances, it's shrinking. And, you know, there's there's less demand for copper and steel, etc. And so that's why you've seen a lot of that pullback. Uh, but what's interesting is that recently they've shown signs that they're want they're wanting to stimulate the economy again. The country's central bank trimmed their interest rates on Monday, which is kind of a surprise move. And uh, Hong Kong's daily South China Morning Post is actually owned by Alibaba. They warned that 50 million vacant apartments could flood the market uh, recently. And so uh, I think they want to avoid that. Remember, China's economy is very massaged, and it would not shock me to see them. Uh, start to stimulate very soon in order to uh, keep thing, keep any social unrest uh, at bay. Now let's keep things moving and go back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier at 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Mike from Dallas. I'm curious what you think of Copart, CPRT, from a long-term hold basis. Thank you. CPRT, CPRT, Copart. All right, this is Copart. They conduct salvage vehicle auctions for insurance companies, charities, dealerships, and banks. Um, so I like the the company overall. Uh, it's a company that has consistent profitability. Uh, it's been growing over time, but it's also over earning right now. Uh, the used car market has been undersupplied. Uh, it means that their prices continue to be very elevated, uh, and their margins, uh, you know, their operating margins are now at forty percent. Historically, that's closer to the mid to low 30s. So I think they're over earning right now, but it's a good business. So I like what you're looking at. Um, I just wouldn't be getting into it yet because I do think it's expensive. 
Uh, on another pullback, back around $100 per share, now it's at $131, I'd be picking up Copart because it is a great business. Now we're moving into a break, so give Invest Talk a call at 888-99-CHART. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, I'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. And Brian R94 says, wanted your opinion on ticker symbol SBNY. S as in Sam, B as in boy, N as in Nancy, Y as in yellow. Signature Bank. And this is a regional bank, offices in 30, 31 offices in the New York metropolitan area. And earnings are expected to rebound pretty dramatically from $9.96 in 2020, $15 a, a share last year, and supposed to make $22-ish this year and almost $25 next year, although those earnings expectations are coming down uh, just a bit. Uh, I think New York's kind of coming back after, obviously, a tough uh, bout with COVID, and this stock is turning around as well. So I'm going to give this a thumbs up. I like the regional banks. It's relatively small, only $13 billion market cap. Uh, you know, would it be my favorite regional bank? Probably not. I, I, I still like the areas that are cheaper. I think we're, we're seeing a longer term structural shift in businesses to low cost states, low tax states, uh, cheaper housing markets, uh, et cetera. And just with the, the shift in work from home, uh, that's becoming a lot more a lot more common. And I think uh, those regional banks that have exposures to those areas are certainly going to probably outperform. So my issue with this, even if I pull up SBNY to the KBE, I always like to look at ratios. Is it outperforming the index? Is it underperforming? You know, it's, it's best fit index. And the KBE is the is the regional bank ETF. And this continues to struggle. So while I like the regional banks, I don't, this is not near the top of my list. Is it good? Yeah, it's fine. But I would be looking, go to KBE, go look at the holdings in it and try to find ones that have superior earnings growth, superior uh, regions that it's serving where the economy is likely to have longer term secular growth. That's my take on regional banks and SBNY. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on student loans. And it's not talked about much, but tens of millions of millions of people with federal student loans may have to start paying back their obligations relatively soon. And this is not a small number. $1.6 trillion of student debt is outstanding, and the government has suspended collecting on the vast majority of it. Now, all, all that borrowed money has pushed up the cost of degrees over the years. I've talked about this many times. That's why college is so expensive because it's so easy to borrow money and spend. And guess what? Those colleges are just going to raise their, their, their tuition because they know they can get it. That's how it works. Uh, now, 
U.S. student borrowers owe a ton of money, way more than they do in credit cards. And basically, this forbearance program has been in effect for over two years under the Trump administration. They started it, and it's continued on with the Biden administration. Now, the current pause on these uh, student loans is expected to end at the end of this month or is scheduled to end at the end of this month. But most people think that by the Biden administration will extend it for a fifth time, a fifth time. And the dip, the reason is, is because there's two ways of looking at it. Well, you can favor what a lot of Republic or Democrats want, which is forgiving up the $50,000 per borrower. Now, President Biden has pushed for $10,000 people making under 125,000. And I think that's closer to what it will eventually be than just leaving it is and then bringing people back to start paying. Why? Well, it's kind of regressive, right? Because most people don't realize that most of the money borrowed for college is for postgraduate education, right? getting your MBA, for example. And so if you're going to forgive the, the, you know, those people, then those people, those people are making a lot of money typically. So, you know, they became lawyers or doctors or, you know, C-suite executives, et cetera. And do they really need that forgiveness? Probably not. And what's happening now is there's an argument that high inflation is making it less palatable to just forgive a bunch of debt because it allows people to go out there and spend more. And that's not what the the government's wanting people to do right now. You know, not, they want it to slow down and try to get uh, inflation under control. Now, the opposite could happen if you make them all pay. Well, suddenly that could slam the brakes on the economy, especially for that younger cohort that is struggling the most in this environment. Now, $700 billion, or sorry, excuse me, $900 billion is owed in credit cards. 1.6 trillion is owned in student loans. So you can see this is actually bigger than the credit card uh, issue uh, in this country. So under the forbearance, what's happened is there's no accrual for interest. Uh, all, all people that were delinquent before are marked as current and you don't have to make a payment. That's a huge stimulus for the economy. And nearly four out of every five st student borrowers have skipped some or all scheduled payments since April of 2020. So this is a, a big kind of swing factor that could uh, have a large impact on the economy, depending on how governments resolve it. But the odds are good that they're just going to kind of keep kicking the can down the road. Now, the next and best talk, the story behind this headline, five signs of investment speculation. So we'll get to that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. listening to Invest Talk and the market has been interesting 
so you'll have important finance and investment questions, and Steve and Justin welcome your calls now. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. We're going to go talk to Chris. He is in Florida looking at UGI. You own it or looking to buy it? Um, I own a few shares and I was looking to buy more if you thought that was a good idea. Okay. So this is a company that distributes propane and natural gas. Uh, it looks like and butane as well. Consistent business, 3.4% dividend. So I like that. What made you buy it initially? Well, from what I've been hearing from you guys, there are obviously a plethora of variables when it comes to valuations, but one mm. is definitely the, the economic backdrop um, in the foreseeable future, I feel like. And this seemed to be a company that um, might hold up all right um, in some harsh economic times for the U.S. economy. Yeah, well, mainly that's because it does have a pretty large natural gas and electric distribution uh, division. So it's not just a distributor of propane. It also is a utility as well. And that's a big part of their business. Uh, so you're right. Uh, that has caused their, their business to hold up well. Uh, dip in earnings in 2019, but has been increasing it ever since. And this year or next year, expect to make $3.23. And it's only a $41 stock. So, uh, you know, it's going to be modest growth, but nice 3.4% dividend yield. And uh, overall, I like it. I still think um, I like the kind of diversity of their business, that they do have that 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 uh, distribution of propane and, and butane but also they have the stability of their natural utility business. So I'm going to give this one overall a thumbs up, Chris. Thanks for the call. Now, if you are an investor, you are someone who is keen on building your net worth and achieving your own version of financial freedom and securing that retirement. So the data I share here will give you some perspective on where you are in relation to others today and historically. Now, the net worth uh, is the total value of assets you own minus the liabilities or debt in this case. Now, the data is about three years old, but I think it still is educational. The Fed will publish its 2022 study next year, late next year. So we'll get an update in a little over a year. Now, according to the most recent data from the Federal Reserve 2019 survey of consumer finance, the average net worth of American families is 748,800 net worth. Okay. Between 2016 and 2019, the average American family net worth increased by 2%. So not a ton, but it was up. Now, the average net worth is up is upwards of 700,000, but the median net worth tells a very different story. Right, because that's 740, 700,000 sounds like a high number, right? But if you take the median, which is the middle, the, act, the actual middle family, remember, median can be, or the mean, the average, can be skewed by people that own a lot, that have a lot of money, right? The Warren Buffetts and Bezos of the world. But if you take the middle, right, means half of Americans' net worth is less, half Americans' net worth is higher. It's 121,700. Now the uh, and, and so this 
kind of weeds out the outliers. Um, so I thought that was a, a pretty interesting uh, a data point to, to kind of touch on. Now, by age bracket, under 65, the median net worth, about 14,000. 35 to 44, about 91,000. 45 to 54, 168,000. 55 to 64, 212,000. 65 to 74, 266,000. And the median over 75, 254,000. So you'll kind of see where you're at in relation to your age bracket. And remember, those numbers were the median. So half of the cohorts with, uh, in those age brackets were below and half were above. Now, the average data shows the typical American in the urban area has a net worth of 2.7 times that of rural America. And part of that is high real estate prices because you're able to build a higher net worth. Now, to broaden out our understanding of our how wealth measurement has changed over time, we look for figures documenting the average net worth of Americans in the 1920s. That was hard to find. However, we did find some information. According to the IRS, the average income was $3,269 per year in 1920. And men filed the majority of tax returns. The majority of people filing returns were employees of other companies, as opposed to those owning and operating their own business like today. As of 2020, the average personal income in the U.S. was $63,214. And the cumulative rate of inflation from 1920 until today, 1,381%. So if you inflation adjust it, that was $48,000 today. So we've improved since 1920, but certainly have stagnated over the past 30 or 40 years. So the mean, per, that means personal income is up 30%, 30% higher over the past 100 years. So hope that helped. That was a, some good perspective and some history. Now let's fit in another caller question from 888 chart This is Mark from Fountain, Michigan, relatively new listener. Just wonder what you thought about John Deere here. I'm slowly building a position rather small right now. Started the first part of July. I'm already up for you. But I am a long-term like Deere story. And just thought I'd like to hear your opinion. Thank you. All right. Now, Deere is the world's leading manufacturer of agricultural equipment. And it's a very large company, $112 billion market cap. Supposed to make 19 or did make about $19 per share last year. So it's make $23 per share this year, $25, $45 next year. 1.2% dividend yield does have a decent amount of debt on its balance sheet. So I don't love that leverage, uh, but it's, its business is, is booming. Uh, and the ag market is, is certainly uh, doing well with the higher prices that they're, they're fetching. Now, the current enterprise value EBITDA is at about 16 and a half, and that's right about the historical average. So I wouldn't say it's cheap or expensive, uh, especially based on, on that measure. Price to sales ratio, that's at about two and a half. And let's see, that's a little higher than, than before. So they're, they're, they're probably over earning uh, a bit right now. Let's go look at their operating margin, because uh, that's always interesting to see is, okay, what what is their current operating margin? And this is, is above or, or below the longer term average. Yeah, the long term average is closer to 12 and it's at 16%. So typically most businesses, there's a reversion to the mean, uh, meaning that it's going to, it's going to, their margins are going to compress 
for various reasons back to what they, they typically are at. Uh, that's happening in housing right now. Home builders are, are compressing to more normal margins. And I expect that to happen with uh, companies like Deer. Uh, long term, though, it's a very good business. You're talking about return on equity that uh, is currently at about 34 and a half. And long term, it averages in the high 20s. So it's a very good business. Um, so I'd say it's modestly overvalued right now, modestly, um, but it's a great business. So I think you'll still do well longer term. Now this is Invest Talk. Let's make it two callers in a row. Hello, Invest Talk. My name is Enrique calling from Pacific Beach. My question is, is it better to reinvest the dividends back into the stock or to get them deposited into your core account, even though if you're going to keep investing 500 to to $1,000 a month? want to hear your take on it looking forward to the answer on the podcast thank you very much now before dollar cost or excuse me dividend reinvesting was a nice little perk why because you got to buy shares consistently and you wouldn't have to pay a commission on that remember you have to pay you used to pay a commission to, to continue to buy more shares uh, and dividend reinvestment was a way to avoid that now with it being free there's not that advantage there. But what it, the, the main advantage is the consistent, um, is, the, is the discipline it creates and the automatic uh, investment that it, uh, it creates. So kind of similar to your 401k, that's one of the best advantages of a 401k or a 403b or a TSP account or whatever it is, is that it's automatic, you don't think about it. And long term, that that habit typically pays off, uh, and and that does uh, the same in the investment accounts. Uh, now, for us, we and our clients, we take it as cash. We take the dividends as cash because we typically want to be more uh, disciplined uh, to buy those more shares when stocks down a little bit uh, and to support. Whereas you're just buying on a dividend reinvestment. You're just buying when it, it pays that dividend. It might be overbought when it pays that dividend. So it really depends on how active you are, uh, how judicious you are on, on continuing to uh, invest on a regular basis and making sure that you have that discipline. If you're more of a set it and forget it investor, a long-term investor, you don't want to like have to monitor it and wait for and, and uh, get on the computer and make a trade when, the, when it pulls back, et cetera. If you don't want to have to do that, then dividend and reinvestment is fine. Uh, so it just kind of depends on what type of investor you are, what type of trader you are. Uh, we take it as cash, but uh, there's nothing wrong with a dividend reinvestment if you are more of a set it and forget it investor. Thanks for the call. 8899 chart, 8892-4278. We have about 10-ish minutes left in the show. So get your questions in now. Let's touch on what consumers are spending their money on now. We've talked a lot about pullback and demand for physical goods, but leisure is a big item that they're spending on uh, currently. Uh, hotel rooms, uh, cruises, uh, visiting places like Las Vegas, gambling, theme parks. These are all areas where there was a lot of pent up demand couldn't really do a whole lot. There was a lot of restrictions. And now that those restrictions are relatively lifted. The, the snapback is pretty large. And even though the economy is weakening, people are still out there spending. A lot of that has to do with the fact that people still have jobs. 
uh, unemployment rate's very low. And in fact, consumer sentiment is ticking up a bit. Now, it's still very low at 55.1, but that's well above over 10% higher than the 50 mark in June, which was the lowest level dating back to 1952. So it has improved over the past couple of months. Part of that probably is gas prices are down. Another is equity markets are up. Uh, and many people are taking vacation days that they've been stacking up uh, since the start of the pandemic. 6.2 million workers took vacation or personal days during the uh, Consensus Bureau's July household survey. That's up 7% year over year. And if you talk to CEOs of like intercontinental hotels and Marriott, etc., they're seeing pricing on luxury and lifestyle that they'd never seen before. So consumers are cutting back on spending elsewhere. Uh, you know, they're not buying new TVs nearly as much. They probably did that during the pandemic. They have a lot of stuff that they, they bought. And so they have a lot of free cash. So it's kind of this whipsaw effect in a big way. And they were probably telling their spouse, telling their kids, hey, we're going to go on this trip. And they finally can do that. So I think there's part of it is a pull for, uh, you know, the, the delayed demand. But I also think there'll be some pull forward demand for next year. So next year could be a bit different than, hey, we splurged, we went on this big trip, we, we, we were wanting to do this for a long time, and we finally did it. Next year, probably will be a little more, a little more frugal. Now, the places that are going to benefit from that, vacation rentals. Why? Because they typically cost less than a hotel. And if you share it with friends, then you can avoid spending money on eating out. You can, you can dine in more often and you can split the cost of, of lodging uh, in a big, big way. Now, what's interesting is Disney said its recent quarter was the best ever for sales in its parks, experiences and products division. So clearly people are jumping back in to, to the parks and Norwegian Cruise Line said they've seen the highest ever onboard revenue generation in its history. So you see that that, that big uh, pent up demand. Wynn said, hand, said slot handle, the industry's term for amount wagered in its recent quarter rose 63% above its 2019 levels. So people are gambling and Caesars Entertainment saw 97% occupancy in Vegas in the last quarter. And people over the age of 55 are returning to Vegas in a big, big way. So that's kind of the trends in the travel industry. Uh, but I think it's also a bit of over earning, right? Over, this is part of that. Uh, a lot of people extrapolate this growth over a long period of time. And it can skew the numbers of earnings in the short term. But the bigger question is always, What's going to happen in the future? What is trend earnings? Not one time. That's kind of what you see. It's on the tech space the year, last year, the year before, the, the retail space, and that's going to be mean reverting. And I think in the, in the leisure space, that's likely to mean revert into next year as well. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And I know it's a, a difficult time with inflation, with uh, uh, markets that are unpredictable. You know, there was a lot of bearishness just a couple months ago, and that's starting to dissipate rather rapidly. And it just shows you that you need to always be open to the potential risks in the market, as well as the potential opportunities. Don't listen to the headlines. Look at the facts on the ground. Listen to companies. Look, in the, look, look at industries. 
And don't get caught too much up in the narrative. Because narratives, more often than not, lead you astray. And so we're trying to keep you focused on the facts so that you can make good investment decisions. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Is it delivering the types of gains you want and need to achieve financial freedom? Well, turn up the volume because there are many questions that deserve unbiased answers. And Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your calls live. 888-99-CHART. Now here's a programming heads up. I'll be taking a few days off, but CPZ will be here handling the podcast for you. Now, as you know, we get calls from all over the world. This came in earlier from Switzerland on 888-99 chart. Hello, Steve or Justin. It is Marco from Switzerland. I wanted to ask you about DoorDash, ticker symbol Dash, D-A-S-H. Recently, monthly full, they open a rare all-in buy signal. But I see that the company is uh, not generating any revenue and is losing money. And I would like if, to know if you have any comments on what the insiders are doing, are they selling, are they buying, and so on. How do you see this uh, looking forward in the next one to two years? Thank you in advance and great show. All right, looking at DoorDash. And this is a company that has never made money. And it's uh, expected to have less of a loss next year of 77 cents versus a record loss of $1.88 this year. Still a $30 billion market cap. Now, the positive is that the free cash flow has is positive, uh, but it's been in decline pretty rapidly. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to, to um, that's going to continue. Uh, December 2021, so the end of last year. The free cash flow was 455 million. Now it's 140 million. So their business continues to dwindle. The chart is not enticing at all. Uh, and frankly, do you care who delivers your food? I don't. Do you care if it's DoorDash or Uber Eats? No. Do you care if you ordered on DoorDash's app or Toast to go pick up? No. And it's going to be a brutal competitive battle to get different restaurants on the platform. Uh, so I don't care what Motley Fool says. I don't really think they're that good. And I would not be buying this. This is not a name I, I've talked to. You want companies that uh, didn't have a one-time big bump in pandemic uh, earnings and business. And DoorDash is a perfect example. It's kind of like Peloton. Remember Peloton... It couldn't make money in the best possible scenario when nobody could go to a gym and everyone was ordering Pelotons and, and so they can work out at home. And then suddenly pandemic wore off and their business dwindled dramatically. Well, that's what's happening in DoorDash. You know, certainly different, maybe not to the same extent, uh, but you're clearly seeing that. Revenue was only up 30% last quarter, which is the lowest growth in revenue in the past two years. So... I think this is a great short $30 billion market cap. I don't see a competitive advantage here. So I'm absolutely passing on DoorDash. 
Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's discuss the bond market and inflation. What is the bond market saying about inflation? Well, consumer, the CPI in July uh, created a lot of wagers that inflation was actually transitory and that the Fed will continue to respond to bring down the, the rate of inflation. And now investors are projecting a much smaller Fed increase in September from 75 to 25 or 50 50 now, 50 basis points. And they continue to price in rate cuts for the first half of next year. Now that's been pushed off to more towards Q2 versus Q1, which it was kind of priced in uh, a few weeks ago. But traders who closely track inflation are back to expecting a 3.3% rate over the next 12 months. Now, just because they're expecting it doesn't mean that's actually going to happen because that's the same level that they were expecting over the next 12 months last August. So they made a round trip. And frankly, they were wrong back then. Over the past three months, inflation has been up nearly three times that much, right? So they were clearly wrong. But the bond market is pretty smart, usually. So they do tend to be right more often than not. Uh, and so the CPI number, uh, the, the, the results from companies, consumer trends, etc., are all pushing the, the wagers towards a more moderate inflation pace over the next 12 months. I don't think 3.3% is going to be accurate, but probably somewhere, probably in the middle of that 8.5 and that 3.3. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And it's official. We're over the 44,000 mark as of last week. And soon enough, by year end, yeah, we could be close to that 50 million mark. Get your Invest Talk podcast anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.